Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. We're very pleased to have a chat with Dr. Stephen Baskerville. He is an Associate Professor of Government at Patrick Henry College and Research Fellow at the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society, the Independent Institute. Uh, I don't know why I can't pronounce these words. <laughs> One more time. Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. We're pleased to have a chat with Dr. Stephen Baskerville. He is an Associate Professor of Government at Patrick Henry College and Research Fellow at the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society, as well as the Independent Institute and the Inter-American Institute. He is the author of a book that will really help you tell your wife how much you love her. The book is called Taken Into Custody, The War Against Fathers, Marriage, and the Family, and it's Stephen with a PH. You can find his work at stephenbaskerville.net. We'll link to that, of course, in the show notes below the video and in the podcast notes. Uh, Dr. Baskerville, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. So I'm going to fire a quote at you, and we'll just start discussing its ramifications. Um, I, of course, uh, uh, love the big picture stuff, and we can sort of drill into more of the details. So you wrote this. Some four decades ago, the Western world embarked on the boldest social experiment in its history. With no public discussion, laws were enacted in virtually every jurisdiction that ended marriage as an enforceable contract. Now, this sort of reminds me of, I think it was uh, under Reagan in California in the 60s that he first put in no-fault divorce, which he later said was one of the greatest regrets of his political career. But since most people, of course, have now grown up with no idea that marriage ever was an enforceable contract, and here in Canada, it used to take an act of parliament to dissolve a marriage, I wonder if you can help people understand just what a massive change this has been. Well, it had actually been going on for some time. In some ways, the no-fault divorce laws simply uh, codified what had been a trend for some decades. But the effect is the same. Uh, in the law, marriage is, is not an enforceable contract uh, almost anywhere that I know of uh, in the Western world. And um, effectively, therefore, marriage is abolished without some state recognition, without some uh, enforceability to it. It's basically a, 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 an empty contract. Some people call it a fraudulent contract. It's certainly a violation of the U.S. Constitution, which prevents the states from uh, enacting any law that, that, uh, that nullifies the, um, or abrogates contracts. So it's uh, effectively marriage. Maggie Gallagher uh, some years ago called it the abolition of marriage, and that's effectively what it is. Well, and of course, there used to be, and we're obviously going to have to generalize about a lot of Western legal institutions here. It may not apply in your jurisdiction. But uh, generally, marriage was a lifelong contract uh, which could only be abrogated if one person broke the foundational tenets of that contract, usually uh, abuse or infidelity were the two major ones. Maybe there were some other ones floating around here and there. But in the absence of abuse or infidelity, you could not wriggle out of or unilaterally abrogate the contract of marriage. And then that, of course, have changed, I guess, coming on uh, five uh, decades ago, where marriage became, well, if you just don't feel like being married anymore, you can just choose to dissolve the contract with um, not only no negative repercussions, but particularly for women, some some positive reproductions, uh, almost some incentives. Well, that's right. Um, I mean, nobody's advocating that people shouldn't be able to divorce. And in fact, people have always been able to divorce. The point was that under fault divorce, you had to accept responsibility for your for your actions. The, the party that was at fault, um, in one way or another, was the one that had, had to accept the, the consequences for it. The concept of no-fault justice is a contradiction in terms. Uh, not only has it undermined marriage, effectively abolished marriage, it's poisoned the entire judici judicial system uh, in the Western world. This this process, this this contradiction, this oxymoron, is spreading out from the marriage 
our contract to the rest of uh, the judiciary as well. The kind of idea of the, so that the courts effectively don't dispense justice anymore. They dispense social science. They dispense, uh, they, they order people's lives. They, they, um, they serve as a patronage machine for passing around and, and, and uh, handling other people's children. But they don't dispense justice, strictly speaking, anymore. And this is, it completely undermines not only marriage, it, just, it undermines the whole common law system and the whole basis of a free society. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about the degree to which basic principles of common law have been abandoned, particularly in family courts. If you can help people understand what a deviation that's been. It's, it's very striking indeed. I mean, at the most basic level, um, as the philosopher Thomas Hobbes once pointed, out, once pointed out, the common law was based on the principle that you're not supposed to be taken to court at all unless you've done something legally wrong. You've done something either criminal or, or civil. You've transgressed some law. Uh, otherwise, you have a right to, to, to be left alone, to stay in your own home and mind your own business. Uh, the divorce law uh, violates this. It, it allows uh, unimpeachable citizens, legally innocent people, uh, who have not violated any law or any contract to be summoned to court and to be subject to the jurisdiction, effectively the dictates, the, 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 the fiat of the court, and to be incarcerated without trial if they violate the, the edicts of the court. Um, this is a, an astounding revolution in the common law system. Um, if you look down the, uh, just to take an obvious example, the American Bill of Rights, virtually every point in the American Bill of Rights uh, is routinely violated in uh, in the family courts, as I, I catalog this in my book in some detail. So you can, of course, uh, if, if your wife, usually it's the wife, uh, I think you've pointed out, depending on sort of the statistics that you use, you've got two thirds, uh, sort of 70 percent, 80 percent, some guesses even run as high as 90 percent of the divorces are initiated by the woman. And even if we were to accept that the contract could be dissolved unilaterally with no negative repercussions, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what can happen if a woman decides to initiate divorce against a husband and if she then decides to deploy uh, accusations uh, against her husband, what, what kind of Kafkaesque pit he could slide into. Well, that's exactly right. It's, it's especially divorces involving children. When children are present, it's, uh, some lawyers will, will tell you informally, that it's virtually 100% of divorces are filed by women. Um, and that's right, because of the concept of no-fault justice, uh, the party that abrogates the contract or the party that violates the contract, either through adultery or, as you say, through recognized grounds, uh, that party incurs no consequences for his or her actions. Um, they can, the court simply takes, it, takes that as given that the marriage is dissolved, and the court then proceeds to formally dissolve it. And then the court proceeds to carve up the lives of both spouses and the children as the court sees fit. And it has nothing to do with justice. The court turns into a kind of social service agency, a kind of a social worker with a, with a black robe who can then just dictate, um, who basically can, can legislate a personal uh, criminal code around every member of the family. The judge basically legislates a criminal code around you, telling you what you can do, where you can go, uh, who you can see. And you're subject to indefinite incarceration without trial if you violate that. Well, this is obviously intolerable. It's inconsistent with the common law principles that have ruled throughout the English-speaking countries. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's simply intolerable in a free society to allow uh, functionaries to, to control people's lives this way. 
Well, and of course, uh, if you can't afford a lawyer, if you're subject to a criminal complaint in particular, then a lawyer is assigned to you at no cost. But in these situations, a lawyer can be assigned to you and often is. And then you're forced to pay for that lawyer whose services you may not have requested or may even dislike. And failure to pay, as you point out in your books, is, is uh, cited as contempt of failing to obey the judge's orders. And so the judge can assign you a lawyer, that lawyer can run up bills. And if you can't pay them, you could be thrown in jail with no trial. This is one of the most astounding discoveries that I made in writing the book, and it's, it's, it's quite amazing. People have trouble understanding that. It's true. Um, yes, citizens who are, again, legally unimpeachable, they're sitting in their own homes, minding their own business, they are ordered into court, and then they are ordered to pay the fees of lawyers or, or psychologists or custody evaluators, a variety of, of officials. They're forced to pay their fees on pain of incarceration. They're simply told that they have to pay 1000 or 20000 or or 100000 they've documented, uh, dollars to a, to an official, a lawyer, or somebody else they haven't hired for services they haven't wanted, and they can be uh, jailed without trial if they don't comply. This is obviously an extortion racket. This is the, the courts are being commandeered by a gang of, of criminals to to shake down innocent people uh, for money. It is uh, one of these things that. Um until you find out about it, you can't really believe that it's true. This side of what used to be called the Iron Curtain uh, many, many years ago, you know, this idea that there's a totalitarian kangaroo courts or star chambers that can try you in secret with no record of the recordings, uh, no recordings of, of the uh, decisions and no particular accountability and no, usually no chance to overturn unless you want to be subject to a huge amount more of legal bills. And this situation where... And we're going to generalize. Of course, it does happen from men to women as well. But in the overwhelming cases, you point out with kids, virtually 100%. So we'll just use the traditional template. One of the things I think that is important about the law, the law exists because people cannot resolve disputes. In other words, they're in some irrational or heightened emotional state of mind that renders them unable to negotiate a win-win solution. So the reason you have a law is because people are already in a state of irrationality to some degree. And to me, then, to, to look at a situation of divorce where emotions are running about as high as can be conceived of, you know, it's the end of a family structure, there's a lot of uh, hatred, there's a lot of anger. Um, I think it was Norman Mailer who said, you never really know your wife until you meet her in court. And um, it seems to me at a time when emotions are running as high as can be conceived of, giving irrational, virtually totalitarian power to one party is guaranteed to create the kind of mess that can take generations to clean up. Well, I think that's true. I think, in fact, the imbalance in power is also what causes the problem. I don't think it's just a, um, it's just a uh, exacerbating or fanning the flames that are already there. I think it causes the problem in the first place. If people know that their violation of the marriage contract is going to bring consequences for them and that they will have to shoulder the, the consequences of their actions rather than foisting, foisting them on their spouse, well, then they're going to, 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 to have an incentive uh, and, and they're going to behave. I mean, we have criminal laws. We have laws to make people behave themselves uh, and to, to, to comport themselves with, uh, with rationality. And if you, if you make it well known, if you signal it that, 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 a, that a filing for divorce uh, is nothing, has, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain emotionally, financially, um, in terms of political power even, uh, if you make this known, then people are going to, you're going to create this, these, these horrible, ugly, ugly battles. And that's exactly what's going on now. And you wrote a, a, an astonishing statement, um, which I really wanted to get out to the 
people who will listen to this or watch this. You wrote, the astonishing but incontrovertible fact is that with the exception of convicted criminals, no group in our society today has fewer rights than fathers. That is an astonishing. Can you help people sort of understand the layers behind that statement? Well, that's that's true. I've never been um, I've never been contradicted in the years since I wrote that. Uh, even an accused criminal under the common law system has certain rights, certain protections uh, for his, his his or her constitutional rights. They have a right to a presumption of innocence, a right to you know, protection against double jeopardy, the right to face their accusers. You know, these procedural civil liberties that we're we're accustomed to, or we should be in the common law common law countries. Um, in fact, fathers in divorce courts and, and mothers too sometimes. Uh, don't have none of these protections. They have no presumption of innocence. There's no protection against double jeopardy. The whole procedure is supposed to be, in theory, a civil procedure, not a criminal one, and yet they can be incarcerated without trial indefinitely. We have cases of men being incarcerated for 10 years without, on, 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 allegedly for not paying child support. Um, and and uh, um, Actually, I'd have to check that number of years. The 10-year one was, was the record that we've, the biggest one we've found so far. Uh, but still, the point is the same. I mean, incarceration on that scale for that time uh, without any uh, trial, without any due process is, again, simply something that and, and it's happening on a huge scale, too. I hesitate always to use the phrase with these kinds of disastrous outcomes that, that people say, well, with the best intentions, people who meant well created a system and then things kind of went awry. I don't extend that to gruesome systems like communism and so on. And But, but nonetheless, there must have been some justification that was put forward as to why we needed a parallel quasi-legal system of unaccountable rights-violating common law shredding um, uh, courts. What was put forward as the justification for this kind of uh, institu- these kinds of institutions? Mm. It's a good question. It's, it was very dishonest from the beginning, and a number of people have pointed this out. What happened, in fact, is that they were advertised as being um, uh, divorced by mutual consent. The argument was that, that people should have the right to divorce by mutual consent uh, if without grounds, um, rather than having to stage so-called, you know, supposedly um, theatrical, um, staged, um, you know, cases of adultery and so forth. Um, in fact, uh, this is not what was happening at all. It was it's unilateral divorce on demand. The the, the no fault default laws that were passed in California and subsequently in other states and other countries were in fact unilateral divorce, where one spouse can unilaterally divorce the other uh, without any grounds and without accepting any any consequences. So it was very dishonest. I, I cannot accept that there were good intentions behind this. In fact, this is driven very by a very ideological agenda. Um, if you look at the uh, website of the National Association of Women Lawyers, you'll find that feminist lawyers were drafting no-fault divorce laws as early as the 1940s, uh, and they uh, they were unable to pass them in those years. It wasn't until the, the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s when um, you know, we had the Woodstock hippies and the sexual morality that they, they promoted that the divorce laws went through without any discussion, without any debate anywhere. And um, this is this was the atmosphere. Attention was diverted by... Uh, by Vietnam, by the civil rights uh, conflicts, and the um, you know the sexual revolution, the sexual freedom that everybody was 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 extolling in those days, uh, this seemed like a like a sensible thing to do for some reason. But there were people at the time that warned that this was dangerous, that this undermined the very concept of a free society, of a, of an independent judiciary, um, and they were simply they were simply ignored. 
Right. Well, it seems hard to discuss these issues without talking about uh, some of the uh, leftist ideology. And uh, sort of as I have ripened and matured, hopefully, to some degree in my thinking, uh, I have sort of grown to recognize that the two great barriers to the expansion of state power are um, traditional religion, Christianity, and the family, the sanctity of the family, the power of the family. Where the family functions well, not only is state power resisted, but where the, fun- where the family functions well, state power is uh, less necessary because children who come from two-parent stable households are less liable for criminality, for drug use, for alcoholism, for criminality, for single motherhood, all of these things which then require more welfare state, more incarceration, more laws, more intrusiveness, and so on. It's hard to sort of not see that there may have been some sort of pattern that the two things, the two pillars of Western society attacked by leftists, Christianity and the sanctity of the family, have been pushed in many ways by the same people who wish to expand the power of the state and particularly expand the power of the state's control over the family structure. No, that's very true. Uh, You put your finger right on that. Uh, Those are two institutions that are alternative centers of morality and ethics and and power to the the state. And uh, as they become weaker, uh, the power of the state increases. This is one of my great quarrels with the libertarians, uh, at least some libertarians who argue that who want to have minimal government and um, less state interference in your lives. Well, that's, that's a very admirable goal, and I share it. But if you're not going to have the state uh, regulating morality, then you need alternative, non-coercive, non-governmental um, associations and institutions like the family, like the church, like civil society organizations, the local community, the neighborhood, the extended family. Um, morality and, and, and uh, has to be enforced by somebody. Uh, we can't do it all from what pops out of our heads. And um, I, you're right. Uh, the, the parenthood, for example, is an interesting institution. I didn't really realize myself until I wrote this book. But a parent is the only person in our society who is allowed to exercise coercive jurisdiction over another person. That is to say, uh, his, his or her own children. Um, in our society, as John Locke pointed out, um, the government has a monopoly on the use of force. The only legitimate use of force is the state, and that's why it's so dangerous and why it must be controlled. The one exception to that is the parent who can, who can spank their child, who can exercise uh, physical punishments or physical control over another person. So once you abolish that, once you prevent that from happening or abrogate the rights of parents, um, you really open the state up to direct control over, over the household, over the private life over children, and you really have, you've opened yourself to a totalitarian state. Right, and just not to shock my listeners, uh, I'm no fan of spanking, to put it mildly, but nonetheless, those are the legal rights that most parents in the West enjoy. The the thing is that, that the marriage was undone to a large degree without people really understanding the purpose of marriage throughout history. And as you've written, marriage exists primarily to cement the father to the family. I remember long ago in an English literature class reading a Strindberg play where he was uh, basically pointing out that women always know the children are theirs, but fathers don't. And the fact that the father can continue to have children into old age that he could trade in if he's got resources or attractiveness, he can trade in his spouse for uh, a younger spouse, although that may be disapproved of or ridiculed, it's certainly possible. And so the family in many ways was... um, created and the long-term marriage contract, which in many ways benefits the woman even more than the man because the woman loses her reproductive abilities in her mid-40s, whereas the man can continue Anthony Quinn style into his 80s, it seems. Um, So the idea that marriage is there to help the woman by cementing the father to the family 
which is why, of course, traditionally, uh, all children born within a marriage union are legally considered the fathers no matter what, because, you know, before DNA, that was just the way it had to work. And so given that fatherhood is so necessary for the mental and moral health of children, it, indeed, if not the continuation of civilization, to not put it too mildly, given that, that fathers are essential to family and marriage was the way that farmers, fathers were cemented to the family, when you undo all of that, when you begin to have sort of no-fault divorce, the breakdown of marriage, you don't end up with um, motherlessness. You end up with fatherlessness. And that is, is true. You, you've pointed this out in an article about riots in England, just how disastrous it is, particularly multi-generationally when you have uh, little boys in particular raised without fathers directly, often without uh, male relatives around, often without other fathers around because single moms tend to aggregate in low-rent housing and so on. Raised by, uh, you know, they may not see a male teacher until they get to junior high or high school. Uh, this kind of um, uh, maternal domination of of early to mid childhood is not producing the the paradise that was sometimes promised, and and seems to be producing a dystopia of uh, dare I say it, nearly biblical proportions. No, that's right. Again, I mean, you, you said it precisely. Um, this is my disagreement with many uh, of the conservative defenders of marriage today who are opposing same-sex marriage, for example. Uh, they argue that the purpose of marriage is procreation. Well, strictly speaking, it's not quite right because uh, the millions, tens of millions of single mothers show that procreation is quite possible uh, without marriage. What marriage does, as you say, it creates fatherhood. Uh, motherhood is a biological fact. It's, it's not disputable. Um, fatherhood is constructed socially by artificial institutions like marriage, foremost of which is marriage. Um, and that's why the breakdown, as you say, you Lord, Lord, allude to Lord Mansfield's law, the Code Napoleon, which says that the, the, a child is the um, the father is the wife. It, sorry, the father is the um, is the husband of the, of the mother. Uh, that is to say, it's not fatherhood is not produced by sperm donation. He is produced by marriage, and it's extremely important, uh, extremely important principle. Uh, and that's why when marriage breaks down, when divorce and, and cohabitation take over, uh, you, the first instance you have fatherlessness. Not mo- motherlessness may appear after that, but the first. Uh, stage in the process is usually fatherlessness. The children may end up without mothers as well and end up in foster care, which is a huge problem. But if you if you look at this uh, in these terms, the, the inextricable link between marriage and fatherhood, then it shows why, first of all, the welfare state is dangerous, as you've alluded to, why the millions, tens of millions of fatherless children are dangerous. It also shows, by the way, I think more more succinctly than many have said, why same-sex marriage makes no sense. Um, because again, the purpose is to is to have fathers, um, not two fathers, not two mothers, but to have a father. Well, and of course, um, given the government's involvement in marriage, uh, a lot of people who have uh, same-sex marriage desires are looking to gain the same kind of uh, marital benefits uh, that are conferred on by the state. When, of course, marriage originally was a private contract, enforceable perhaps through the state, but made in a church or other area. Two people committing to to be together for their life. And if the state was not that involved in marriage, it seems to me um, not that likely that other groups would try and get in on uh, what has become kind of a marriage racket at the moment. Another thing I wanted to talk about was the degree to which I've, I've hit this point repeatedly in my show, but it's one of these things I was, you can't say often enough, is the degree to which when fathers are separated from families, or when that is a distinct possibility, as everybody who uh, gets into marriage generally knows, that it can be a risky proposition. 
then what happens is the uncertainty that women face, uh, single women or divorced women or women in marriages that are, may not be that stable, the uncertainty that they face creates a vacuum that the state loves to rush in to fill. And as you've pointed out, um, you, you're quoting a, um, a polling firm, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rossner, who reported uh, American voters in general may shy away from, quote, radical steps such as importing a Canadian-style healthcare system. Unmarried women, however, embrace such a powerful step. So can we talk a little bit about the degree to which women who are not secure in the protection of a husband tend to gravitate towards increases in state power and security? Well, it's very true. Um, in many ways, much of this problem began, if you go back before uh, the divorce revolution, in many ways, the welfare state, much of the roots of this uh, took place in the welfare state. The welfare state um, uh, began the process of, of fatherlessness by effectively evicting fathers in their homes. Most of the authoritarian machinery that is now in place uh, originated in the welfare state. I'm thinking of the child support enforcement machinery, the family courts, the um, domestic violence programs, which are used as an excuse to remove fathers from their homes. All of these things began in low-income communities in the welfare state. They have since spread through divorce to the middle-class families as well. Um, but it's it's uh, it's it's that that really needs to be tackled. And if you look at the, how much of the financial crisis that faces the Western world since 2008 is attributable to government spending and welfare spending, uh, the welfare state really is, is one of the things that, that needs to be tackled, not just from an economic and fiscal standpoint, but from a social one as well. Um, these fatherless homes, as you point out, are, are, um, are also the, the main predictors of, of unsocial behavior, of crime, of substance abuse. Uh, and these are the things that eat up most of our domestic budget as well. Um, budgets for education, budgets for uh, health, uh, law enforcement, uh, um, uh, incarceration. Uh, so the welfare state is more expensive than just its uh, the cost of, of the handouts. It also has a multiplier effect uh, by creating crime and other social problems that the state has to solve. All of this is very serious. One could also make an argument, I think, too, that same-sex marriage has arisen because of the state recognition the welfare benefits that accrue. There's no reason that uh, two, um, a same-sex couple has to be in a sexual relationship. Any two men or two women can marry now. And, um, and collect uh, multiple welfare benefits. So that's really, in some ways, the prize that is being um, that's, that's being dangled in front of people. What's driving, in large measure, the same-sex marriage? So we need to rethink the whole concept of how far we want the state and provision to be uh, involved in the private lives of families. Well, as I pointed out on this show, the welfare state is the single mother state. The two are virtually synonymous. And of course, whatever you subsidize, you get more of and whatever you tax, you get less of. And uh, when people have stable, happy, productive marriages, uh, they get taxed to pay for people who have made, let's just say, not optimal, suboptimal choices in who they've um, had sex with to be the father of their children. And so naturally, um, you know, given the sort of public choice theory that government programs really influence and affect behavior in ways that's somewhat easy to predict when you're taxing stability and you are subsidizing licentiousness or irresponsibility, well, of course, you're going to get less responsibility and more irresponsibility, uh, which means that uh, the problem that you're trying to solve at the beginning, which is relatively small, you're feeding to the point where it can devour the body politic. Yeah, as you, as you indicated earlier, I think uh, one succinct way of saying this is that is effectively uh, these single mother homes are um, the state becomes the provider and the protector. The state serves, uh, usurps. The role of the father and becomes kind of the you know the, the big patriarch, and then when the father uh, then becomes a rival, a rival to the state who effectively has to be incarcerated to 
to stay out of the way. So the two functions that the father performs, providing and protecting, uh, are then taken from the state, and they also serve as the excuses to incarcerate the father. Most fathers are incarcerated for non-payment of child support or for uh, domestic violence. So uh, again, the, the protective and pro- providing role of the father becomes to be inverted, becomes to be the threat to the protection and the provision of women and children, and, he, and he's, he's taken off in handcuffs. Well, and this is something that is, again, astonishing. I mean, you have to go back to Charles Dickens in the sort of early to mid part of the 19th century to find examples of debtor's prison. Uh, They generally have been abolished. The non-payment of debts may get you some negative consequences, but it won't get you a jail cell, with the one exception uh, of state-mandated custody payments, uh, which, you know, and, and they're not forgivable should you become ill, should you lose your job through no fault of your own, should your job be shipped overseas, should something happen. The local plant closes down, even though you were a good worker, it does not affect or adjust your uh, payment requirements. And of course, then uh, you go to jail where you can't earn money and then you come out and the interest is accumulated and it really can be a revolving door of near permanent incarceration for for some men under some circumstances. And that is horribly uh, unjust and and recognized as the wrong way to go morally um, many, many decades ago, but still remains in this area. But because men are the victims, uh, it doesn't really seem to. Because, you know, now now it's all deadbeat dads and uh, without realizing that, of course, the government stands often with a truncheon between a father and his children to call him a deadbeat dad is, um, I don't know, like calling a prison uh, a prison cell inmate uh, agoraphobic because he doesn't seem to want to go outside too often. It's uh, ignoring the coercion around the entire situation. Now, the one thing I also wanted to mention, which is um, it's a very, very big topic, and this is uh, something which contributes to it, I do believe, is this question of um, what's called the demographic winter and so on, which is the idea that um, – as is going more so even in Japan than in, in Europe to uh, some degree in Canada to a slightly lesser degree in America. I was driving lots of debates about multiculturalism and immigration and so on, which is the fact, of course, that most of the um, English-speaking native residents of uh, Europe and North America and Canada in particular just not having that many kids. And there are lots of theories that are floating around, but this idea that the men are going galt or refra- refraining from getting involved in marriage Partly because they probably a lot of them have seen their own fathers be detonated by the family court system and want to have nothing to do with it. The long-term effects of the hollowing out of the young, you know, in Japan they are selling more adult diapers than child diapers these days. Population dropped by a million just over a few years. To what degree is this really affecting foundational familial decisions uh, going forward? That's very interesting uh, question. I'm not a demographer, but it is fairly clear. A number of people have put forth this view that uh, men are on strike. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Helen Smith has written a book called Men on Strike, where she um, documents this very clearly, that men are effectively boycotting marriage because they can see uh, what is happening, uh, what can happen to them. They, they, they have no, uh, once they marry, they have no control over their, their, their livelihood, their home. Um, their persons, and above all, perhaps their children. All these things can be taken away from them. And so the men are effectively refusing to marry. Um, there are other reasons, too, for the, for the low birth rates as well. But, but I think this one is, is unmistakable. And it is very strange that people are out there promoting conservative groups and so forth. are out there promoting marriage and, and um, uh, government programs to promote marriage. But these programs are very ineffectual and, I think, largely pointless. Uh, if you look at the incentives that are that are the disincentives that are built into the the divorce system, I, in some ways, no man in his right mind uh, will marry and and have a family. Um, a few years ago, there was a group in Britain 
that was touring university campuses, and they were warning young men not to marry um, because of what could happen to them in the divorce courts. Well, and of course, uh, it's not like uh, having sexual relations with a woman these days at any college campus is not is not without its risks as well. That can be quite exciting uh, and a great challenge for some men, should there be regret and uh, mind changed um, after the fact. Now, when it comes to reform, it's a, a tale as old as the legal system that the some people say that the, the primary business of law is to invent business for itself. How can such a system that is so financially invested and so accepted as a necessary and positive part of the legal system by the majority of people who haven't got this kind of information, what kind of reforms do you think are possible and how could they be achieved? Well, the actual reforms needed are, are really very simple. Um, it really means a matter of enforcing the constitutions of most of the free societies. Um, if you simply make marriage a legal contract, so it doesn't mean that, that, that you can't divorce, that, that couples can't separate. It means that the, you have to accept the consequences of what you do. If you commit adultery, if you cheat on your spouse, or if you want out of the marriage without any legal grounds, well, then you have to accept the consequences. You may have to leave the marriage by yourself. You may not be able to take all of the goods with you. You may not be able to take the children with you if the, if the spouse has done nothing wrong. So simply by by enforcing the standard common law protections that we all thought we enjoyed, the right to be sit in your own home, to, be, to mind your own business, to be left in peace, to be left in peace with your children if you have committed no, no offense, no transaction that's legally recognized. If these things were simply recognized, the U.S. Bill of Rights, the, the English Bill of Rights, the traditional protections of the common law, this would take care of it. Um, but it's not, it's not that we lack the mechanisms to do this. They're all in place. What we lack is the political will. What we lack is the courage to take on this huge lobby of um, not only feminists, um, uh, but family court lawyers, uh, social workers, family court judges, a huge uh, entourage, a huge mafia, really, of both public officials uh, and um, private industry now, which has a vested interest, frankly, and to put it to the bottom line, in separating as many children from their fathers as possible. And um, that's what has to be fought. Yes, I mean, it is uh, something that the, the battle would be long and hard. And of course, you know, a lot of politicians have had their own divorces and, and that could be a, whatever party took it on could be accused of hypocrisy for those kinds of things. Uh, but of course, you know, you, you probably have learned a lot about the court system by being divorced. So I mean, divorced person might be the perfect person to, to bring this kind of stuff up. But as you point out, it would be a very long and difficult battle and um, the rewards would not accrue to the politician in power. This is one of the general problems, of course, with democracy, that the things which affect society for the best uh, generally take up to a generation to manifest, which is longer than the career of most politicians. And so it seems there's a lot of incentives against it, few for, except this sort of passionate desire uh, to do what the family courts say that they claim to do, to act in the best interests of the children and the best interests, of course, of women. You know, this is, women are uh, t statistically the safest when they're in uh, a, a marriage and children are the happiest when they're in marriage. So if we are interested in protecting women and acting for the best interests of children, we should be doing everything possible to promote, promote marriage, not weaken the foundations of its stability. Right. And as to the question about you know, the, 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 the coalition, the political likeliness of, of doing this, I think it's important to realize that what's going on against fathers and divorce courts isn't, doesn't exist in isolation. There are other people that go through similar kinds of violations of due process of law. Many of them are promoted by the same lobby of feminists and, and, uh, and government lawyers as, uh, as the divorce courts. 
And if all of these people, I, I'm thinking of people, for example, of, of families, parents, even intact parents, two parents, who were accused of spurious child abuse accusations and whose children were taken away from them. Sometimes they're uh, homeschoolers, sometimes they're Christians who have traditional views of, of family life, but they can very easily lose their children on the flimsiest charges of child abuse. Uh, you alluded earlier to the universities where young men in North America and now in Britain and elsewhere are accused of rape, rape and sexual assault. Again, on very flimsy evidence uh, that most people are pretty are clear didn't didn't happen. It, 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 these are fabrications of rape accusations. Um, we have a whole series of these kinds of things: fathers, deadbeat dads, um, false rape accusations, false sexual assault accusations, false child abuse accusations, accusations of nebulous crimes like bullying. Um, and if all of the people that were the targets of these these abrogations of justice got together and uh, spoke with the United Voice and then looked at the parallels. Uh, between these different um, facets of the problem, I think you'd have quite a large number of people that could speak out and do something about this. This, in fact, is what my next book is about. It's showing how the fatherhood crisis is part of a much larger crisis of the judiciary and the government generally um, invading people's private lives and, and, and abrogating their civil liberties. Well, this is one of the very frustrating things that... Um People who have a good case and a good argument to make usually don't need to create parallel institutions to mirror their desires or their goals. So, I mean, there is, of course, you know, if a woman is genuinely raped on campus, then, of course, there is an ex existing uh, legal system to deal with that and, and punish, as has been the case in Western law for thousands of years, punish the rapist severely, and that is entirely right and just. Uh, and um, so you shouldn't need some sort of parallel system of these um, the committees, uh, you know, where the accused is not allowed to confront the accuser, sometimes not even allowed to have legal representation and so on. And so you should not need to create parallel institutions. You should be able to achieve what you want working within the existing legal system. And I always have this great suspicion, Stephen, when I see people who say, well, we can't get what we want this way, so we're going to create some parallel institution with lower standards in order to get what we want. Because my question is, well, maybe what you want isn't the right thing. No, that's very true. I mean, nobody is, contrary to what we're, we're accused of, nobody is arguing against laws for, against rape or assault or battery or um, or child molestation or any of the other things. These are crimes, and they've been statutes on the books to deal with them for, for generations. What we're dealing with here is the reinvention, new new crimes that, are, that, as you say, circumvent the standards of justice, or redefine government officials openly talk about redefining, the, uh, redefining rape, a new definition of rape, or creating domestic violence um, measures when there's already laws on the books against violent assault or child abuse uh, measures when there's already laws um, that prevent people from, from sexually or physically abusing another person, whether it's your own child or not. So these, these newfangled laws, uh, these newfangled hysterias is what they amount to in many ways, are often ways to bypass the criminal statutes like, like uh, rape or, um, or, or physical assault and to bypass the protections that the common law systems give to um, the accused. Right. It's hard also to imagine, uh, I'm a big one, of course, of the traditional Western approach to ethics is universal, universality, right? And if you can't universalize a particular system or uh, approach, then um, it's almost invalid by, by definition. It's a self-detonating statement to say something is moral, therefore universal, but cannot be applied universally. 
And it's hard for me to imagine any other system of human conflict, human disagreement, uh, whether it's civil or criminal, wherein you could have these kinds of standards. You know, if, if you have a disagreement with your neighbor, as you point out, over, over a fence, well, you can't just rip down the fence and force your neighbor to pay for something. You, you have to go through. And if you've unjustly accused someone, there should be negative repercussions uh, for, for those things. If you lie in court, there should be negative repercussions and so on. And all of this is something that you could not take the principles that are currently at play in divorce and in family court and apply them to uh, any other sphere that I can think of without completely undermining any legitimacy or justice in those spheres. And th this should give people some, some cause for concern. Well, that's very true. And, 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 uh, but unfortunately, that is what does seem to be what's happening. The principles that are being put in place in divorce courts and in other of these, these sexual crimes, these gender crimes, are spreading out into other areas, and they are they're poisoning the judiciary. Um, again, my next book will, will outline this in many ways. Um, you can see this even in, in international organizations like the United Nations and the European Union. They are applying international, internationally now, they are using the principles of Anglo-American divorce law and putting them into areas of, of international social work and international child protection. So this stuff can't remain um, isolated. There's no fire break between divorce courts and the rest of the courts. As, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Once these, these, these you know, bad justice drives out good justice, once you put these, these, uh, these bogus principles into place and allow men to be treated unjustly in divorce courts, for example, this sets a precedent which can be used in other courts. Uh, for example, if you look at the rape accusations in university campuses, these are, um, are justified because the, the young men who are accused on university campuses are, are not jailed. They're simply expelled from the university. Uh, and so therefore, they don't need due process of law, it is argued. But there's no way that these principles are going to remain isolated to the universities. They're going to spread out to the, to the criminal judiciary, and they're going to be used in, in real rape cases or, or real uh, criminal uh, accusations where people do live in uh, jeopardy of incarceration. So, um, you know, this is poisoning our legal system in a very serious way. Well, and uh, of course, the first thing to do with these kinds of uh, things is to expose them. Well, when would your new book be coming out, do you think? I hope it will be out this, uh, later this year. Oh, okay, good. Well, uh, obviously, keep us posted. We'll do what we can to help uh, promote it. I really, really do appreciate your time. Uh, today, Dr. Baskerville, really wanted to remind people, go to stephenbaskerville.net and uh, check out his book. We'll put an Amazon link to it below. Taken into custody, the war against fathers, marriage and the family. I really appreciate that your work, the work that you're doing to help people see this. It's the kind of thing that, that until you're in it, you don't really see it. And once you're in it, it's highly hazardous to speak out against it for fear of negative repercussions from the system itself. So uh, thanks so much for, for all the work that you're doing to promote this. And I uh, hope that we can get you some books out there and get some people reading your stuff. It's essential and important stuff for people to understand. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care.